Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Well, this is the official relaunch of our Blister Book Club, and given everything that is going on in the world, we thought that it would be a very good time to talk to Chris Diamond, the author of the books Ski Inc. and Ski Inc. 2020. And as I've been working my way through Ski Inc. 2020 this past ski season, I found myself thinking that Ski Inc. 2020 is sort of the Game of Thrones of the ski industry. Though, I guess for better or for worse, with fewer beheadings. But anyway, the strategies, the alliances, the warring factions, the takeovers, counterattacks, and the truly interesting personalities at the heart of this industry, it's all fascinating, and it is all very much a story about world building. And Chris Diamond was particularly well-suited to tell this story. Chris worked in the ski industry for over 40 years, including stints at Killington and Mount Snow, and he served as the president of Steamboat Springs for 17 years. This vast experience in the industry made Chris extremely well-equipped to write his first book, Ski Inc., and then with the rise of the Epic Pass and then the Icon Pass, and the whole recent era of rampant ski area acquisitions that we've been living in, Chris knew that a follow-up book was in order in response to our brave new world. The long and short is that Chris's two books pull back the curtain on an area that ought to be of inherent interest to any season pass holder and really to anyone interested in the past, present, and future trajectory of the ski industry. And so I am very happy to have Chris on the podcast today. And then just one reminder before we get going here, our next Blister Book Club is going to be with Jeff McFetridge, and Jeff and I will be talking about the book The Abstract Wild by Jack Turner, and that conversation will post on May 11th. So get yourself a copy of The Abstract Wild, and you've got a month to read it. But for now, let's talk about the state of the Ski Inc. in 2020 with Chris Diamond. Here we go. Well, Chris, how are you today and where are you today? <laughs> Good question. Well, I'm looking out the window of my office in uh, beautiful Steamboat Springs. It's about a crystal clear blue sky, edge to edge snow above, you know, 7,000 feet pretty much. Valley floors melting off at 60 degrees and I just had a lovely bike ride this morning. So you catch me in a good in a good mood, <laughs> except for the fact that I'm not skiing because right. we were supposed to be open uh, until this Sunday, the 12th. Right. And sadly, we are not. Sadly, we are not. Um, I think we might touch on this uh, in this particular conversation. But before we get there, let's talk a bit about your background. And I kind of want to just get started with when and where did you first start skiing? Okay. Well, I uh, grew up in Western Massachusetts, in the Northampton, East Hampton, Amherst area, right near the Connecticut River. So close enough to the Berkshires that uh, at least when I was a kid, we used to have winters and it was cold. So we went to a little local area that had pretty much rope toes called Berkshire Snow Basin. That was my introduction. It doesn't operate anymore, sadly. And then eventually Mount Tom in Holyoke, Massachusetts. And that's that's where kind of got the bug. You know, my cousin Alan and I'd go over there Friday, Friday nights. And there's nothing like being a teenager night skiing. <laughs> uh, and it was a fun, it was very close, literally a 10-minute drive from my house. So wow, that's where I started. Great. And now roughly, roughly what year are we talking when you're, when you're night skiing? Well, this was the, uh, you know, late 50s. In early 60s, I, I probably was 12 when I first started skiing and, uh, and stayed stayed with it. Um, never a ski racer, just loved it. We couldn't afford um, it to ski a lot. Of course, it was a lot cheaper, especially, if, you know, in those days, you'd go up in a foot pack for your day pass. So that's what we did at uh, Snow Basin. And this is the days of, you know, leather boots and long thongs. 
but great, great fun. Uh, and, and I skied, you know, through high school, but once in college, uh, as happens with most kids, I just stopped for a couple of years, not having the time or money. What was your first job in the ski industry? I was a bartender. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that's in the, uh, I went, I was lucky to get into a real fine college in Vermont, uh, Middlebury College, and it was uh, just a little over an hour's drive uh, to Killington. So I'd had a number of friends uh, that I'd met in Lake George where I worked summers uh, who basically spent, spent their winters at Killington. So I wound up basically going down on weekends and working my senior year. And that's ironically how I got in the ski business. I got to know a lot of people um, because of that. I worked at the, the ski area itself in the Snowshed Lounge, but also at a, a club called the Wobbly Barn, um, which was owned by a guy that became a great friend of mine over the years, Jack Jaguar. And uh, it were those connections that eventually led me back to the ski business after school. As a bartender, I mean, were you just like pouring pints of beer or were you actually like making drinks? <laughs> no, it, well, we didn't have complex cocktails in those days. <laughs> okay. You talk about, a, you know, Tom Collins or a Singapore sling would be about as complicated as got. Mostly just uh, pouring draft beer. Okay. All right, I, I I just wanted to see what kind of what kind of you know mixology chops you had yeah, here. No, never. I did not get a degree in mixology. Okay, all right. Let's talk then. We talked about your first job in the ski industry. This might take a little while. I don't know how quickly you can do this, but why don't you walk us through some of the jobs that you've held in the ski industry? Okay. Uh, well, I uh, after Middlebury, I. Uh, Went to grad school at UMass and Amherst in English. I was class of 68 in college, so I'd had to join ROTC at Middlebury to have some control over my destiny because clearly uh, it would be straight to the draft otherwise. Uh, so I had a military commitment coming and postponed it as long as I could. But uh, just before Christmas um, in 1969, in my third semester, finishing my third semester in grad school, I got my notice to report. So, uh, and it was to Fort Gordon, Georgia, more information than you need, but obviously it didn't make sense to start a fourth semester and get uh, pulled out of it. So I wound up going up to Killington and wound up, you know, because I had a couple months to basically waste time, hopefully earn some money. I was thinking I'd go back to working at the Wildby Barn, but uh, I ran into Foster Chandler this first night that I was up at Killington after leaving school. And Foster asked me to stop by the next day. He knew I was an English major. So he hired me uh, to work in the marketing department. Hmm. And that turned out to be uh, an almost, I guess, like an eight-month experience because my reporting date was postponed a couple times. So, long story short, when I got out of the Army to, in 1972, I thought briefly about going back to graduate school, but um, my head wasn't in it. And I said, well, maybe I'll think about Killington, and at least for a while. And I wound up getting hired by Preston Smith, the president. And I, you know, quickly picked up additional responsibilities and then in 1977, we bought Mount Snow, and I sort of led the due diligence process. And as a result of that, once we closed on it, I became the general manager. So wonderful opportunity, and uh, uh, the rest is history. I've been in the business all my life. I got to ask, so when you were in graduate work, were you working toward a PhD in English? No, I got a I, – well, I, that was my plan. Um, I got my master's. Mm -hmm. And then you got interrupted. Yeah, I had to go to war. So I did, honestly, for several years, I thought that I would uh, eventually go back. And I'm still in contact with my advisor from graduate school. I, he's up in Winnipeg, uh, <laughs> Manitoba, and I visit him every year. And, and uh, he reminds me what a good decision I made not to go on in, huh. in English, finally. So uh, 
the, the academic world's changed a lot since those days. Yes, so. it, yes, it has. I would not have been. I would not have been a happy guy. Well, I was a former philosophy and literature double major, oh. and went on and did five years of grad work in philosophy. So uh, I'm, I'm wow. still always, uh, and then did teach philosophy for a while. But um, so always, always curious when uh, somebody else kind of was on, you know, walking a similar path, and then kind of got pulled off of that path, which I guess you and I both did. But, yeah, uh, absolutely. But, you know, as you look back on it, you know, you learned the, the discipline of writing mm-hmm. and critical thought, and that's so important. doesn't matter what you do, but I think that's a key to success. And unfortunately, the communicating piece to me is something that's becoming a lost art, but we don't want to go there. <laughs> Let's just say I totally, totally agree with you in terms of the training the skill set in the training, um, not, not a day of my life do I ever regret um, or think that that was uh, time wasted, you know? So, okay, well, you seem to have left out a part of the story where you became the CEO of Steamboat. Well, that, that's, fo- okay. Well, that <laughs> followed, uh, see, I was at Mount Snow for many years. Okay. And then in uh, uh, 1990. Four, um, moved back to Killington, um, the company decided it really wanted to, you know, become more of a conglomerate than basically just Killington and Mount Snow. Um, so I was very active in that, um, acquiring Sugarloaf in Maine and Waterville Valley out of bankruptcy. Just before that, a couple of years before we got, we picked up Big Bear in Southern California um, and uh, Haystack in Vermont, Pico next to Killington. Yeah, so at that time, the um, the area was was called SKI Limited by then. It had been prior to that called Sherburn Corporation. But at that time, the mid to late nineties, uh, it was the largest conglomerate in the ski business, and it was pretty clear to me that um, ownership getting older was going to eventually be selling. And I, so I had a chance to be sort of inside the circle rather than outside sitting at Mount Snow. So mm. I, uh, I was very active in that. And then in the last year, 1995, 96, I also oversaw both Killington and Mount Snow operationally. And that's when the company was being actively shopped. And then much to everyone's surprise in 1996, Les Otten uh, walked into the board of directors meeting and basically presented a, an offer that was fully banked by the Bank of Boston. And that was it. It was accepted, minimum due diligence. And, and then it became uh, life, life with Les for a couple of years. And then uh, I went back to Mount Snow after he acquired the company. And then from Mount Snow went to steamboat in Jan- in February of 99 and basically have been here ever since. Obviously, lots of, lots of changes in ownership since then, but that was my process, progress sort of yeah. fits and starts around the, but all around the, you know, the dynamic of the new or uh, aging conglomerates. It was a fascinating time. So, yeah, I'm, you know, we're just trying to establish, you know, your, uh, your authorial credentials here for these books we're going to be talking about. But um, long and short, started as a bartender, worked your way up to CEO. It's pretty good. That was an interesting route. <laughs> Absolutely. I, 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 there are other ways to get there. But this one was more. I probably made more money per hour as a bartender than I would have as a lift operator, although I had to do all of that at one time or another. Huh. So. Well, so you are clearly somebody who uh, has been in the industry for quite some time. And so this is why I'm, you know, particularly interested in speaking with you today as we're in such an interesting time for the ski industry. And, you know, if we were having this conversation a year ago, I would have said the exact same thing. But I don't know, today, you know, we're talking on Thursday, April 9th, things are only more interesting, I would think, as they are 
uh, quite interesting on a global level. So in 2017, you published a book called Ski Inc. Then in, I think, the fall of 2019, you published this follow-up book, Ski Inc. 2020. You know, let's start with Ski Inc., kind of the original. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that book, and then we're going to, you know, then we'll kind of get in a bit more on to uh, Ski Inc. 2020. Well, it was actually published just in time. I think it was like December 1, 2016. So we wanted to oh, okay. hit the Christmas holiday period. That book was probably half memoir, half ski business 201. <laughs> I mean, really no one, uh, a lot of books written about ski business, the skiing, uh, history of skiing but very little bit about the business side of it, especially um, with a view over, you know, 30, 40 years, which is what I had. Yeah. So I, I, I wanted to tell, I wanted to tell the story of some of the real makers and shakers, entrepreneurs that really made this sport possible for us. And Press Smith was classic uh, in that regard. So I wanted to give credit to what, he had accomplished, and then some of the people behind him uh, in what was an incredibly creative company at that time, the Killington Organization in the early 70s was, you know, just amazing collection of leaders. <clears throat> and Foster Chandler, the marketing guy who'd given me my first chance, was especially um, talented and left a significant mark on the, uh, on the industry. But no one had really told that story, I, mm. I'd felt. So that kind of got me going. I was able to tell the bartending story and all that sort mm. of stuff. Uh, but I also led into then the the creation of the first conglomerate, really being SKI, and then how that morphed into the American Skiing uh, Company. And while people are generally aware of the fact that it was not successful, um, you know, I had the insider's view of that, so I, I wanted to present that so that I'm not writing – I wasn't writing history. I was giving a perspective, and I um, recognize that um, there's probably lots of stuff in there that uh, could be debated, but it was one person's view of how American skiing came together and then came apart. Uh, and then I basically continued to – follow the change from the perspective of somebody in Steamboat with the successor to American skiing becoming IntraWest and then IntraWest's getting into difficulty uh, and its ownership being Fortress, a big private equity company down in New York. It, you know, experiencing trauma as a result of the 2008 recession, then leading to, you know, the quick sale of multiple assets. I mean, total transformation of uh, Interwest, which at one point was the largest ski company uh, conglomerate in North America, probably, um, no, certainly the world, larger even than Vail at that time. Um, but it went away, and as it went away, Vail slowly and steadily continued to grow, um, and in some cases by acquiring some of the really prime assets that Interwest had, like uh, uh, or that American skiing had, such as uh, Heavenly Valley. So the book tracks all this. And really, at the end, Vail was the dominant, clearly the the most successful dominant ski company with no evident competitor on the horizon. I argue in the last pages of the book that it was just a matter of time before Vail would acquire a, a resort in the Northeast, um, and begin its epic sales, you know, takeover. Hmm. And sure enough, hmm. it would, you know, I'd, we'd just shipped the the documents <laughs> off to the printer and they bought Stowe. Uh -huh. <laughs> and so uh, I said, well, I felt pretty good about that. Yeah. And, and then, you know, as to the next book, uh, April 10th of 2017, lo and behold, um, the announcement of a partnership between the Crown family hmm owners of Aspen, and KSL, um, private equity firm in Denver that owns Squaw 
in Alpine Meadows. And on the day, on the next day, it was announced that Mammoth and its, um, its Southern California ski area, Snow Summit and Big Bear, would also be joining this new competitor. Bang, whole world changed. And I, you know, I imagine if you on the 9th of April were at the Vail offices, you know, I'm not sure they had their feet up on the desk, but it was a pretty uh, comfortable world Mm -hmm. um, that they had created for themselves and no evident, you know, competitor stock price in the low 300s, you know, brilliant leadership under Rob Katz. Uh, they were hot. And then, whoa, where did these guys come from? So what my book, what uh, never, I've asked a number of people to give me an example of an industry that underwent this same level of transformation in this short a period of time as our ski business did, basically starting that April for the next two years when uh, Vail uh, Vale and Altera, uh, which it was finally named after about I think ten months, of yeah. Figuring, trying to figure out what, what to call it, um, <laughs> they they've basically been uh, in a punching match. You know, one lands a right hook uh, with an acquisition, and the other lands a left hook with another acquisition. And every major market uh, in North America has seen this play out. So now you have two areas that own over 30% of the skier visits of the business and a lot more of the total revenue in the ski business. But if you look at all the past partners that are now a part of Icon and Epic and over, you know, where there's a strong relationship, whether to Vail or Altera, and add up the ski visits, skier visits that those represent, it's over 50%, right? Yep. Just between the two passes. So uh, that's not the the uses that are on those passes, but what the total visits represent um, by way of clarification. But either way you look at it, uh, it's just incredible. And what is also incredible to me as a business person that's watched it over the years, you know, normally when you have that kind of control, pricing control in the hands of a handful of companies, it's not good for the consumer. But it's been just the opposite because of the transformation and the way skiing has been priced through these passes and the the competitiveness between these two companies, uh, you know, has brought unbelievable deals to to skiers. I I tell I remind people here in Steamboat that when I came in January or February of 99, the steamboat season pass, an unrestricted season pass, was over $900. Hmm. That was 20 years ago, yeah. 21 years ago. And you can, I mean, in inflation, I mean, yeah. I don't know what that would be in an inflation-adjusted basis, but stunning. So it's quite the transformation. You mentioned, you said that you used to ask people, name me another industry where you've seen, you know, this kind of... A, a shift in the landscape overnight, as it were. I'm just curious. I mean, what what is the closest thing? I've never had anybody give me anything that I thought was credible. I mean, we talk. You talk a little bit about the airline industry. Well, mm. You know, it's still. You know, yeah, we've had. You know, TWA's gone away. And, uh, Continental's gone away, but it's it's still quite competitive. Uh, you look at the hospitality side in terms of, um, you know, the Marriott's and the Hilton's, you know, clearly, you know, you have Marriott as a big dog, but there's also a lot of other players out there. Probably the lodging is, is the closest thing to skiing, but it's still, you know, two, two players don't control over half of the rooms in North America. Mm-hmm. It's still a reasonably competitive uh, market. So I don't think there's anything like it. And there's certainly nothing like uh, the pricing strategy with the, the uh, you know, the, the rule now is, and it's not just for the two majors, pretty much everybody else has followed. And the rule is you give me your money early, you get a hell of a deal. Yeah. 
So if you're willing to, to give a deposit and part with your money before the before Christmas comes, you know, you get values that were unheard of. I mean, I know, I know, I know a lot of people that regularly buy both passes. Mm-hmm. It's just the way they do. I rode the gondola here in Steamboat just last year with a couple Aussies, and I always ask, you know, how did how did you get here? Oh, well, mate, we're down in Vale for a week, and we're here for a week, and then we're going to Hawaii for a week. I said, well, so you did you buy both passes? Of course. Yeah. We ski, and they said, look me right now. I say, we ski year-round for less in the world, basically, for less than we used to pay at our local hill here in, you know, near uh, Sydney. I mean, and that's that's a fact. And they ski, you know, they, they had also been to Japan prior to coming out here in, the, in February, as I remember. And, it's, and so they... You know, ski year-round, probably 70 or 80 days. And it costs them, what, 900 bucks U.S.? Yes. (laughs) It's it's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. $10 a day. Just to kind of recap this, so you publish your book, Ski Inc., you know, then shortly thereafter, we hear about Vale's purchase of Stowe. You pour yourself a nice drink. Raise a glass to yourself and your keen powers of, uh, you know, prediction. And then, though, yeah, as you've said, well, fast forward not too much further and Altera comes on the scene. And so this is when, as we've just said, the whole ski world changes and sort of shifts. And at what point do you think, crap, I got to write. Ski Inc. 2020? I knew it immediately. Uh-huh. Yeah, good question, Jonathan, but I knew it immediately. What I didn't, uh, what, I, what I knew was how, let me back up a little bit. I, I had uh, access to all of the basically key players in both companies because of my having worked with them. You know, some was part of the same company, some just as you know, just collegial yeah. competitors. So I I told uh, you know them that I was writing a, a book. So I had I was able to talk to the David Perrys, Rob Katz's, Rusty Gregory's, um, as they were growing their businesses, and they were honest and quite direct about hmm. what their guiding business strategies were. So. I just immediately got into sort of researching how the two were going to evolve their business strategies. And the only thing I had to do was wait a little bit to see how the, um, in the execution phase, the passes played out. As you remember, because, you know, of course the acquisitions went on for a couple of years, but for Altera, when they closed in April on that, the, first group of resorts uh, or then past partners with the, the Aspen resorts were not acquired, but they were in the past deal. It, it, it wasn't going to happen right away. In other words, it wasn't going to happen for the following season because there were already past deals in place that couldn't be broken. So it wasn't going to be until 18, 19 that you'd really be able to see how the resorts were going to compete head to head with their with their icon and epic passes. So I really had a year plus to do my research um, and and talking it wasn't just about the two big guys, it was also how the other players yeah. were responding. And that was a fascinating um, sort of study because I went into it thinking that there were going to be some serious losers and really I didn't find many. I hmm couple that, you know, frankly, had always struggled uh, for locational reasons, you know, access or snow or lack of water. And, um, but they're, they didn't seem to be any worse off, uh, given the transformed landscape. So what was happening in the whole business, uh, as I kept talking to people and researching it, was that it seemed that the whole thing, whole Ski world was on, on go, over, excuse me, undergoing a, a renaissance, and led by the 
pricing change that that was uh, found a responsive uh, audience and millennials, uh, and it, a lot of other things going on at the same time that sort of accelerated uh, the the increased skier visits as a result of the uh, pricing changes. Uh, and one was VRBO Airbnb. So mm-hmm. for the first time at the last minute, you could decide to come to a steamboat or Aspen. You know, if you didn't want a hot tub and concierge service, you can get a room, a bed for 90 bucks. So all of a sudden, you know, the skiers in one pass or the other, or sometimes both, uh, having purchased both, were going off to places like Steamboat, Jackson Hole, Telluride, Big Sky, um, you know, that were aspirational in the past and now actually doing it. So this then, in my view, created its own uh, energy and the kind of a positive feedback loop. So back in the offices in Denver, somebody's just talking about a five-day trip they made that they finished off in Jackson Hole and what a great time they had. And the ones who are listening that aren't skiers or marginal skiers, they just get sucked into the excitement. And so the numbers seem to support an argument that uh, this is really driving uh, new growth in the ski business that had been very flat for a long time. Well, you know, one of the things that I found so interesting about Ski Inc. 2020 the way that you outline sort of the it just it's a chess game right and you do this beautiful account of Vale makes this acquisition Altera counters here here's why that was a critical move but i thought this was so interesting and it was a little bit embarrassing for me to think like I remember when some of these acquisitions were happening, sometimes I'd be like, yeah, I don't really get that one. (laughs) And then your book, it was like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. But I just was curious how much of this kind of punching and counter punching or, you know, a chess move here, a counter move, how much of that were you sort of aware of in real time or are you willing to confess was some of this, some of these acquisitions, you're like, I'm not sure I get that on the face of it. Uh, 50-50, very good question. You know, in some cases, to me, there were there were just obvious acquisition targets, although I, I was skeptical that they would occur knowing that it, you know, was quickly shifting to a, a seller's market you know, because Altera was paying a premium. In some cases, I'll give you a quick example. If you look in the book, does sort of look at how this all plays out regionally. In no area was more dramatic in terms of that than um, Southern California. So, yep. if you were a skier in Southern California up until the arrival of Altera and the Icon Pass, you bought an Epic Pass because six major airports, four or five flights a day, 99 bucks one way into Salt Lake City. 25 minutes later, you're at the canyons. And it, uh, you know, it was a hugely uh, popular product for Vail. And they had acquired the canyons from uh, American Skiing or, a, uh, you know, a successor to American Skiing. And Canyons Park City now, this huge uh, property, you know, 25, 30 minutes from the airport. Well, the Altera guys, and Eric Resnick explained this to me in detail. He was the senior CEO, CEO for KSL. And he said they had the time, you know, around the the original um, partnership, uh, forming that, and then moving on to through time in 2017, they basically curated their pass. They looked at all the markets and decided where they felt they had to be to compete. So back to Southern California, uh, Vail dominate dominant position, but Altera now had at least Snow Summit, Big Bear, for day skier traffic out of Orange County in L.A., and also Mammoth. So that's okay, but what about Utah? So they paid a premium for Deer Valley, and I've told it, multiple is something like 14 times uh, EBITDA. 
something that was unheard of. But with that, then came Solitude, which was owned by the same family in a later transaction, and then eventually past deals for Brighton, um, Snowbird, and Alta. So, wow, what a transformation. So now, yeah. <laughs> now you've always been buying an Epic Pass, but unless you had a condo right on the slopes in Park City, isn't the icon more attractive? So it, it's just fascinating how, you know, they, mm-hmm. they move through time, you know, to, to find a competitive advantage and then the other one would respond. So uh, just, you know, amazing story. This might be a good time in the conversation. And again, you've, you've touched on this a little bit, but we'll, we'll just kind of um, let you make the case here if, if you care to. You know, for somebody listening to this, and I think you and I are both well aware of this kind of attitude, you know, someone who's just like, you know what? Screw Vale, screw Altera, screw these big corporations coming in and buying my favorite ski area. I don't like this new world. What would you say to, you know, that, let's say, not that uncommon attitude? Well, I, I think, you know, people are different. <laughs> uh, people respond to change differently. You know, the old, who moved my cheese, right? Hmm. I think the reality is that the pass, the undeniable reality is that the passes are popular. More people are skiing more often. So if you want to go back to the old days when Friday was quiet, it ain't going to happen. It's, uh, it's different. Now, assuming we don't wind up in an 80% economy or, or, a, or a depression of some sort, you know, and we, we come out of the COVID-19 uh, trough here, I, I think we'll get back to the situation we were in the last few years, which is, you know, just more people on the slopes. Now, I, what I am sensitive to, and I think both ownership groups are, is you've got situations, um, you know, and Jackson Hole would be a great example, where I think they still sell an unrestricted pass for fourteen or $1,500, right? Well, if you bought, you know, last year you had your um, icon base that you paid 500 or 600 bucks for, gives you five days at Jackson Hole. So you happen to show up on you know, two of the best powder days of the year and the line at the tram, you know, was an hour and a half. The locals that paid fourteen, fifteen hundred bucks are not happy. So to me, that's a, a logical pushback. Uh, and I get it. But I think so do ownership. So I know for this year that Jackson is not included and you have to pay a premium you know, to get those days, I don't know, what is 150 bucks or something, it'll probably still be popular, What won't be as popular as the original deal was. So I think over time, you'll see either blackout dates or further restrictions so that um, the experience, the quality of experience still has to be high or, or it's not a win-win scenario, right? So I, I think over time, these pushbacks will will change. But, but again, the context is different. It's not going back um, to the way skiing used to be, where the resorts charged a premium and people with money showed up and they had you know, a good experience, not too crowded. Locals got a, usually some kind of deal for their passes and uh, life was good. Well, it was, except the business was slowly going south. Now it's changed and, you know, some of the people that I talk to locally who are complaining are the same ones that years ago were, you know, telling me, hey, you guys don't do anything to build a sport, you know. So you can't have it both ways, right? That's an interesting point, right? So while I have, you know, I'm perfectly fine if somebody's like, I don't like this new world, you know, with these with these passes, that's fine. I think that's a, a fine opinion, but if they, if someone has that opinion and hasn't actually thought through, you know, and considered like a lot of these ski areas were not in a sustainable business position, then you need to go back to the drawing board, yeah. right? It's like, 
if right and so i think that that is something that needs to be kind of reckoned with and i do think and it's fine but sometimes some of the the biggest complainers just haven't actually bothered to think through like oh this totally doesn't work for my little ski area and so it's like would you rather that ski area go under and close or would you rather be in the current sort of ecosystem and it and it doesn't seem like that's a dramatic or overstated dichotomy yeah i, I don't see the the issue isn't so much uh to me of sustainability there are, i mean there are other things we haven't talked about that are going on in the in the industry where you know central new york's a great example where you had two nearby ski areas greek peak and labrador or whatever you know competing head to head and marginal you know operations you know they're in a difficult weather situation in a tough market in terms of the industries having moved on so they merge you know in some cases it's a you know a financial uh, consolidation in other cases it's getting together to offer uh, an attractive pass product so the the change is happening at so many different levels you can't look at just the um, the big guys and what's happening at Jackson or Deer Valley or the pushback at, at Vale and Beaver Creek. It's the whole business is, is changing the way it looks at, at value and making sure that it's an attractive proposition, which long-term means less volatility in terms of ups and downs, fewer bankruptcies, you know, more uh, stability for the, for the mountain towns. And I, and I see that happening across across the board. So the long-winded way of saying you can't go back. I said that the book was worth the sort of price of admission just in your detailing of the kind of acquisition strategies and move, counter move, that sort of thing. The other thing I love about this book is just learning about some of the characters. And I, I'll, I'll confess, I mean, you know, there's a chapter on... Boyne Resorts, and there's a chapter on Powder Corp. And I was like, okay, cool. I can just like gloss over those chapters real fast. Like I'll just read those super quick. Those ended up being two of my favorite chapters in the book. Like I just realized I didn't know the players. I didn't know the principles behind these, you know, mid-majors as you call them. And they were fascinating. I don't know. This is just, I, I don't know if I have a question here other than learning about Everett and Stephen Kersher and John Cumming at Powder, you know, Everett and Stephen Kersher yeah. at Boyne, John Cumming at Powder, just fascinating, like interesting characters, really clearly defined philosophies um, and what they're interested in, what they're not interested in. And I thought those were two wonderful elements of the book that I just wasn't I just wasn't expecting. So, you know, thank you for that. Yeah, well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I, that that was one of the more interesting things that happened in, in the, you know, doing the research and having the opportunity to talk to these guys. I and mean, the level mm. of creativity and entrepreneurialism, mm. you know, they found their niche, you know, they figured out who they were and you know, they're in a real tough, you know, market right now, but they are thriving because they're smart guys. They put together great teams and uh, kudos to them. And most people have no idea who they are or what they've done hmm. or what the collection of their resorts are because they don't operate like a, a Vale or Altera. Their, their passes are have aligned with Icon, but nobody knows really who, who's behind in terms of ownership. Okay, I think it's crystal ball time. Again, it is Thursday, April 9th, when you and I are talking here. We are right in the middle of a COVID-19 world. And um, I'm just wondering what you think our current situation means for the ski industry. And this is also um, somewhere here, you know, I want to raise the question about independent ski areas, right? That's something we haven't really talked about too much yet, but um, I think that's uh, going to be an important question here um, in these very strange times and uncertain times. Well, you know, if you're in a mountain town like Steamboat right now, it's pretty devastating. You're 
friends are out of work, uh, employees furloughed. I mean, there is nothing happening. It's a great time to bike on the roads because there's no traffic. Uh, but the world is kind of, the economic world has come to a grinding halt. And it's never, you know, you have to go back to, I guess, Spanish flu to see something that was as medically uh, challenging. But again, the re- the response in terms of um, policy wasn't the same as it is right now. So, but we've never had just a uh, a stop to the to the service economy, at least. And so, anybody tells you what that means and how we're going to come out of it is it's just guessing. And we're not going to know till we get there. Uh, all we can do is kind of hope. Uh, I think I said earlier that you know, skiing can't exist under the current social distancing rules. It just can't open the doors. So it really becomes a question, how long are we going to be able to go before we get back to some semblance of normalcy? And will that normalcy allow skiing? And I have to be of an optimistic nature, and I think we'll figure it out, because fortunately it's the you know 9th of April, and we've got till yeah. Thanksgiving to figure this out. <laughs> Uh, hopefully well before then. And I do think we will. We're going to be able to test. Uh, we've got to have the ability to treat people so that they're not dying. It's okay to get sick. We get sick with the flu every year. But if we can hold it to flu-like uh, symptoms uh, and discomfort, that's a whole different ball game. So I, I think we'll get there. Uh, and then we'll skiing. How quickly will it rebound? I'll say, as I always, it's going to be more a function of, of the snow uh, probably than anything else because, you know, I can remember, you know, the uh, Arab oil embargo in 73, 74. It was, it was a pain to go skiing. I mean, you could only buy 10 gallons of gas at one time and there were alternate days when you could do it. So if you were driving to central Vermont, to Killington from New Jersey, you had to carry gas cans. You know, and they did, and uh, and it was also it was a bum snow year. We had you know a lot of rain, freezing rain, but it wasn't a disaster by any means. We had a lot of people showed up to make the best out of it, and that's kind of the nature of the skiing beast. You know, you just just want to stay with it. Now, the early the bellwether, the Canary in the coal mine, will be past sales if. Uh, if there's a huge drop in past sales, that's going to tell you that the economic damage is maybe greater than than some are thinking, and and uh, you know it'll probably take us a couple of years to get out of this. But so I mean, and again, I'm not my business. I'm not an economist. I'm not going to predict it. But the canary will be past sales. It's interesting, though. Wouldn't it be expected that? Ski areas, and maybe I don't know if we want to focus primarily on Vale you know, with the Epic Pass and the Icon Pass here, but if things are still pretty uncertain, you know, let's say in July and August, and let's say even September, October, they and other operators are going to be responsive and nimble here, right? Like, I I really agree with you. Like, if it seems like we have turned a corner on this COVID thing, and we get a strong start to the ski season in terms of snowfall, skiers are going to be chomping at the bit to get out. And so I guess I would say, while it wouldn't shock me if there is hesitation to buy a pass now, that could change pretty quick if it's like the snow's starting to pile up. I mean, you're, you used to deal with this day in and day out. I mean, you, you tell me. Well, I don't. I think I look at the leadership in the industry now is is a handful of executives at at uh, Altera and Vale, and you know, very bright people. They're going to watch what's happening out there. They're going to look for economic signals, and they're going to make sure that they they know everybody that skis at their mountains, and they know how to communicate with them, and they will find the product, the price point that gets people to commit. I don't know what that is. It's going to depend on a lot of other externals, but they'll all manage that very carefully. And I think the rest of the industry will follow. It, it, it's not going to be business as usual with the passes. I think we can be 
confident with that. But uh, mm-hmm. they'll find a way to get people to commit because that's the secret. Independent ski areas. Would you predict that they are going to fare any better, fare any worse, or kind of just fare about the same as non-independent ski areas? Uh, well, I talk a lot about it in the book, and, and uh, I think I mentioned when we first started the conversation, as I got into it, I expected to find, find that there were some people that were going to be serious losers. Yeah. And it just didn't happen. Um, if the resorts, independent resorts, I mean, they, they're so, I mean, Telluride's an independent resort. Right. You know, Sun Valley's an independent resort. They're, you know, they, they have very well-defined markets and brand image, and they happen to have aligned with the passes, but there are others that haven't picked a pass and yet have rolled out the same pricing strategy and are successful in their regional market. So if you're a national, if you're a destination resort, it's probably tough to go it alone. I can't think of any majors that really haven't aligned. When you look at a large regional resort, it, you know, it depends on the appeal of the brand and how well it's been managed and what kind of product they offer and have they adopted a competitive pricing strategy. I found that that's typically what's happened and there, there weren't any, any big losers. So I, when I asked the question, I guess I meant it a little more specifically in terms of our COVID-19 situation, whether you think Indies are in a trickier spot than those that haven't joined a, a collective? No, I don't think so. Because again, it, it, they tend to have, it's, it tends to be a regional appeal yeah. where they have a well-established brand and well-known well, well known product and a solid following. And, you know, that's, it, you know, each region is different. I happen to be on the advisory board of Schweitzer up in Northern Idaho. Hmm. And, you know, they're coming out of it faster because, you know, Washington, they're just, you know, an hour and change from, from Spokane, Washington. So they, that region saw sort of the first impact or onslaught. And so they expect to, you know, kind of come out of it a little earlier. And I think the general tone there as a result is quite optimistic. Not that there are a couple tough months ahead, but their runway to get uh, when pass sales occur is a little longer than some others. And they're really, and I think they're looking at the economic impact uh, in that region, which is more related to, you know, Boeing and uh, and some other industries that are they're really being impacted. And that's probably going <clears> to <throat> suppress demand to a degree, but. Again, it depends on the region you're in. We've talked quite a bit about the acquisitions uh, by Vale and Altera. Do you think that we are, let's say, over the next three years, if you had to wager, do you think we are going to see a slowdown in acquisitions now? Or if they are going to just continue in a fairly frenetic rate of acquisitions? My, my crystal ball is a little cloudy in that regard, but <laughs> I, think, I, I think they were both ready to, to hit the pause button and concentrate on, on bringing the new acquisitions into the fold, you know, setting up new, rolling out new systems and, and sort of absorbing appropriately all the, the new pro, um, properties. So, I think that was happening, and I think the COVID crisis has just sort of confirmed that that's probably the trend. I mean, so I, I think there's probably a two, three-year pause, and then what I'd look, what I would, most of the major, the big guys have pretty much been acquired in North America. Not that there, there are a few, but the real question in terms of uh, dynamic growth of, of one or the other of those conglomerates would have to come in, in sort of the middle tier, uh, you know, the 300 to 600,000 skier visit 
group where Vale made a big jump when they acquired Peak and they have all about 17 uh, small to medium sized resorts back in the Northeast. So is that a trend or that was that kind of a one-off because they were able to get all of them at one time and really cement the appeal of Epic in that market. That's really what that did. So mm-hmm. I, I, I would say we're probably seeing most of the activity and the, the canary here will be, does Altera start buying some smaller mid-sized resorts in key markets? Okay. So this is going to be our last question and it's going to be one more crystal ball question. I want you to imagine, you know, fast forward three or four years from now, and you're about to drop another follow-up book. This one's called Ski Inc. 2023 or Ski Inc. 2024. From where you sit today, how big of a subject, how significant of a factor do you think our present COVID-19 situation would be in a book that's looking at the next three to four years of the ski industry. Is this COVID-19 thing going to be a major player or kind of a minor player in your next book? Uh, no, I, I think I, I said I'm an, I'm an optimist. <laughs> uh, I think the next book will, uh, if I do another book, I'd probably be looking closely at changes in, in these mountain communities, whether it's Crested Butte or Steamboat, or, uh, Jackson Hole, because this, is, this has been traumatic for them. And how is that going to change the appeal for real estate? Uh, what's going to happen to so many restaurants that were, you know, kind of hanging on anyways? It's tough to make, make it in a seasonal economy. How many are coming back? And what's life going to be like? So uh, that I think that to me is a, a big question. Skiers are a hardy lot. They're going to come back. Might take them a few years. I mean, the recession took our Colorado destination businesses off what twelve percent or something almost immediately, and it took almost ten years to get it back. Not total yeah. visits, you know, the front range sort of backfill, but uh, you know, so there, there, there's going to be a hit, uh, but it will, you know. It's going to be different in different markets. I'm going to say maybe the family uh, $10,000 ski vacation gets cut back, but you're still going to see front rangers heading up <laughs> one way or the other. And if you're in the Northeast, you know, maybe you don't see as many week long or uh, long weekends, um, but the day trips up to the Vermont New Hampshire resorts, so they'll bounce back as they always have. Mm. So it's going to be different. Mm. Well, Chris, I really appreciate you taking the time to kind of survey the present landscape and talk a bit about the history of the ski industry and where we've come from and where we're kind of headed in that thing. And yeah, and I really hope that people will check out both of your books, Ski Inc. and Ski Inc. 2020. I hope we've hope we've provided a good picture of what folks are getting in each of those in each of those books. But um, you are. uh, really a great person to be having today's conversation with about the history and the future. And so, uh, yeah, grateful for all of that. Okay. Well, thanks, Jonathan. It was a pleasure. Likewise. All right. You take care. Yeah. Bye-bye. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Chris for the conversation. And be sure to check out Chris's books, Ski Inc. and Ski Inc. 2020. And remember, the next Blister Book Club episode will drop on May 11th, and that will be a conversation with artist Jeff McFetridge about the book The Abstract Wild by Jack Turner. I actually just started The Abstract Wild this past weekend, and honestly, literally just the introduction to the book has already kind of blown my mind, so I'm sure I'm going to talk about why that was the case with Jeff. So pick up The Abstract Wild, and I'm looking forward to discussing that one soon. I also want to thank Jared Farley for producing this episode, and I want to thank you for listening. And we also really hope that you are staying safe and being smart out there. Um, I know these are not easy times for a whole lot of folks listening to this. And from all of us here at Blister, we're all thinking of you and hope you're doing okay. The last thing, if you've got some downtime these days, 
I really, really strongly encourage you to check out this week's episode of our podcast called Off the Couch. It is an amazing conversation with Dominic D. Tommaso. Um, he's one of the best free runners on planet Earth. I don't care if you don't care about running whatsoever. Dom is actually sort of a parkour artist and athlete and a free runner, and it is kind of a mind-blowing conversation. And then this Thursday on our Bikes and Big Ideas podcast, I'm wildly excited about that episode too. Um, So subscribe to Off the Couch and Bikes and Big Ideas. Um, You're not going to want to miss this week's episodes. Then, of course, on Friday, we'll have our Gear 30 episode coming up, and um, that's going to be a really good one, too. So enough teasers on that. Anyway, please take good care out there. We will talk to you again real soon.